Today's episode comes with a warning, as the content includes an excerpt from a poem condoning rape. In popular culture, for early humans, often referred to simply as cavemen, courtship was as simple as a bloke whacking an unwilling female over the head and dragging her by the hair back to his cave. Of course, there is no evidence for this whatsoever, as we cannot gain much social information from such old archaeological dig sites. So what do we know about historical courtship? Today, we're going to find out. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. people of the ancient world, we often forget that the needs, wants and desires of humans has always been pretty much the same. Like modern humans, people of ancient civilizations put a lot of effort into attracting a partner, whether it was for sex, love, marriage or all of the above. Let's do a little time travelling. Adorn your sandals, slap some sun lotion on and let me take you to ancient Greece. You've had your eye on Gaia, a baker who makes the most incredible pelanos bread you've ever tasted. You're sure she's been giving you the eye over the bread counter, and she is the embodiment of Aphrodite on Earth, particularly when she has a smudge of flour on her cheek. You've decided that you're finally going to make your move. The token of love is in your hand, ready to go, and you spot her making her way home. Gaia! you shout, getting ready for your big gesture. Before she realises what is happening, an apple comes hurtling through the air, on course to smash her in the left boob. You hold your breath as you see realisation dawn on her face. She hops out of the way of the crunchy missile. Oh dear. What the hell are you doing lobbing an apple at bay anyway? Chucking an apple at someone in ancient Greece was a ploy to seduction. If they caught the apple, you might be in with a shot. If they didn't catch the apple, then better look next time, mate. I've always been good at catching, so I feel like I'd be in a pretty good position here. But what about all the people who are bad at throwing, or rubbish at catching? Are they destined to be alone forever and end up surrounded by cats in tiny togas? The dream. Either way, the reason why throwing apples was considered a ploy at seduction was because apples were regarded as sacred to Aphrodite, the ancient Greek goddess of lust, sex and sexual desire. If they're good enough for Aphrodite, then they're good enough for me. Though if you chuck anything other than a pink lady my way, I'll be sorely disappointed. The Ars Amatoria, or The Art of Love if you don't speak Italian, was written in 2 CE by Roman poet Publius Ovidius Nasso, known as Ovid. The book was a series of poems intended to teach young men and women how to succeed in the game of lovemaking. It was provocative and light-hearted in tone, and it's said that one of his racy poems caused him to be banished by the Emperor Augustus six years after its publication. He is like the Roman version of a Cosmo magazine columnist, giving advice to the youth that they dare not ask of any other elders. The book gives us a really good look into the ins and outs of the dating game just over 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome. The first half of the book is telling the reader how to win a woman, and the second half, how to win a man. Poems from the first half include Search While You're Out Walking, Don't Forget Her Birthday, and Promise and Deceive. The second half includes Take Care With How You Look, Beware of False Lovers, and Try Young and Older Lovers. Declaring himself as Venus's guide on earth to love, 
Ovid states his experience in all matters of love and begs Venus's help. I've never really been particularly good at interpreting poetry, though this reads more like a self-help book, with fluffy language rather than a book of poetry. According to Ovid, there were plenty of chances to find lovers in ancient Rome, at the theatre, horse races and drinking parties. While their slaves stayed home to do all the work, elite men and women from Rome could socialise freely at public events. In one poem, he encourages the reader to get to know the maid of the one thereafter. But this is not so she can sing your praises to her lady, it's so you can learn when her periods are, and in turn, know when she is most fertile, and therefore be more likely to accept your advances. Listen to this and pretend I'm a 60-year-old Roman bloke. She'll tell the time, the doctors would know it too, when her mistress's mind is receptive, fit for love. Her mind will be fit for love when she luxuriates in fertility like the crop on some rich soil. Ugh. Wow. I feel like this has crossed the line from, ooh, be nice to her and catch her gaze. On what level is this not quite terrifying behaviour? Poor buggers. His main advice to those seeking women is persistence. If she asks you to stop sending her letters, just keep going. As he says, soft water carves the hardest stone. He also advises that if she has a husband, be nice to his face and secretly wish him ill. Promise and deceive her and do whatever it takes to attain her. Listen to this. Though you call it force, it's force that pleases girls. What delights is often to have given what they wanted against their will. And there it is. What a guy. Someone needs to tell this bloke that no means no and chuck him in the sea where he belongs. Despite some of these incredibly dark pieces of advice, if you're interested, you can get his works for free online, and I did spend a good few hours reading through them because it's a tiny little window into the past, albeit a broken and grubby one. A few hundred years later in the 3rd century, Roman Emperor Claudius II believed that single and therefore unattached men made better soldiers. Claudius the Cruel, as he was also known, made marriage and engagement in Rome illegal so he could get all of the soldiers he needed. As a concession, because this was a pretty rubbish thing to do, he encouraged temporary coupling, which sounds like a really posh way of hooking up. At a festival honouring Juno, Roman soldiers would draw names of eligible women to see who their lucky friend with benefits for the year would be. Once chosen, the man would wear her name on his sleeve for the rest of the festival. There are varying accounts as to whether this is the origin for the phrase to wear your heart on your sleeve, but let's just say it is and keep it between us. There were some odd practices in Scandinavia during the Dark Ages. For instance, if a girl wanted to show her man she liked him, she made him a shirt. This isn't the odd one. In fact, making a shirt would have taken a ridiculous amount of time, so it's really quite a thoughtful gift. As for Viking men, they would go out and handpick their beloved a bunch of purple flowers. Though we won't be handing them over sweetly at the doorstep. Imagine opening your door and just being slapped around the face with a bunch of flowers. Because that's what Viking women were treated to. Such romance. When I think of medieval chivalry and romance, I think of preening medieval knights prancing around in tournaments acting like peacocks. Jousting tournaments were a really good place to meet potential suitors. For a classic gift of love, a medieval lady could bestow a favour on a knight. Usually one of her detachable sleeves, a handkerchief, a ribbon or a scarf. Something fluttery and easy to see would make a good public declaration. What made a favour special was that it was most likely handmade by the lady herself, 
and so could have a family colours or our own special symbol stitched onto it. It may have even held a signature scent from the lady's favourite lotion, bath water or perfume. I think we need to bring personal sigils back. Mine would be a red fox, because I originally hailed from Leicestershire if my accent hadn't already given it away. The county of Leicestershire is shaped like a fox head, so we're big fans. I'd infuse it with the scent of lemons. Or grass. Or cherries. Let me know what yours would be. I bet you thought you wouldn't hear any more about apples in this episode, but you're in luck. Not content with simply lobbing an apple at your potential love, people of 16th century England took it a little bit further. Okay, let's head to a dance. Dress? Check. Lavender oil? Check. Apple slices? Check. Can't forget them apple slices. There's big hopes for this night. The apple slice went into your armpit. You'd dance all night, sweat profusely in all of your layers of undergarments, corsets, bodices and skirts. You spot the object of your desire. The time has come. You take out your pit apple and offer it with a seductive curtsy. They take it and take a salty bite. You're in. If they didn't take a bite, well, you've just wasted a bit of apple because they ain't interested. This tradition also happened in 19th century Austria, so it can't be as unpleasant as it sounds, surely. Why don't you give it a try? If you've ever been to Wales, you'll know that you can find this next token of love in pretty much any souvenir shop. Dating back to the 16th century, the loved up Welsh have created ornately carved spoons known as love spoons. These beautiful spoons were traditionally made from a single piece of wood by a suitor to show their affection to a loved one. The decorative carvings have various meanings, from an anchor meaning that they want to settle down, to an intricate vine meaning love grows. Whatever happened to a frank conversation? But anyway, these spoons are still super popular and can be seen across the country adorning the walls of proud Welsh homes. During the Italian Renaissance, courtiers gave belts to the objects of their affections. These belts were often embroidered with personalised, highly erotic poetry. Over in America, Puritan women would accept a practical gift of a thimble as a symbol of matrimonial intent. Once the wedding is taken place, they would cut the top off the thimble and use that as the wedding ring. A tradition from 17th century Germany sees a young man standing a birch tree on a young woman's lawn on the first day of May. The tree would be draped in ribbons and decorations bearing the young woman's name. If the tree lasted the month without being cut down, that was generally considered a good sign. It is still practised today. Who wants to hear about the Victorian swanning about? Me too though I am referring to the age of Queen Victoria rather than just Victorian England. Some of the Nordic countries have courtship customs involving knives. Don't worry though, it's much less gruesome than it sounds, more suggestive than stabby. For example, in Finland, when a girl came of age, her father let it be known that she was available for marriage. The girl would wear an empty sheath attached to her girdle. If a potential suitor liked her, he would put a knife in her sheath, as it were. If she was interested in him, and his knife, she would keep it, maybe giving him a wink in the process. Believed to have started in 19th century Fiji, a sperm whale's tooth known as a tabua is often given by a groom and his family to the parents of the hopefully future bride when he asks for permission to marry her. Tabua roughly translates to sacred in Fijian. 
The valuable relic associated with good luck and even supernatural powers has traditionally paved the way for marriages in this nation of more than 300 islands. I don't know about you, but have you ever looked at Bay and thought, God, I'd love to pop your eyeball in some jewellery? No, me neither, to be honest. The Victorians did, though, along with loads of other creepy stuff, but specifically they had fake eyeballs painted to look like their love and wore them as jewellery. This was a good way for them to display their affection without revealing who their love was. Let's call them sneaky eyeball jewellery. If eyeballs aren't your thing, I can recommend a fan. Not the oscillating kind, the fancy Victorian lady kind. In the publicly repressive Victorian culture, women weren't given much freedom to express themselves, especially in matters of romance and sexuality. You couldn't just go up to someone in a bar and tell them you like their hat and would like to see it on your floor. How dare you suggest it! Whatever they had to say on the subject had to be spelled out in codes. One of the most effective of these codes featured the fan. With a few fancy flits here and there, women could communicate a broad range of emotions. A shut fan was bad news and was a big no-no. In other words, back off. An open and shutting fan was an open invite for a snog. Better hope you don't get them two mixed up or you're going to get a slap. If you're struggling to decode the fan, you could always send a pair of gloves her way. If she wears them at church, she's into it. Though I'd make sure I was sending a fancy pair. Send her a black pair and you might not be able to tell if they're yours, which could make it quite awkward on a Sunday. Receiving flowers in the modern world is so nice and it's usually one of a few messages. Congratulations, I love you, or I'm sorry for being a dick. Receiving flowers in the Victorian era, however, was a whole different kettle of fish. Every blooming flower has its own meaning. Blooming. <laughs> Moving unashamedly on. You better have your flower dictionary to hand. If you receive a bouquet of bird's foot trefoil, hydrangea, delphinium and basil, they might as well have left a flaming bag of poo on your doorstep. This combination means you're heartless, haughty and I'm going to take revenge. Awkward. The bouquet that you do want from someone that you've got your eye on includes cedar leaf, red chrysanthemum and vervain, meaning I live for thee, you are enchanting and I love you. There's a flower for everything. Deceit, poverty, tardiness and of all things, bulk. Other objects Victorians used to encode romantic messages included parasols and dance cards. It was often difficult for dating couples to be alone without a chaperone in this era, so how are you supposed to tell them about your massive natural history collection? But never fret, good sir, madam, for I have the solution. Tired of old bags eavesdropping? Positively finished with nosy nances? For today, and today only, I bring you the incredible, the unbelievable, the top of the range, never been seen before, courting stick. For the price of just three shillings, this modern solution to an age-old problem could be yours. The courting stick was a six-foot-long tube which, when pressed to the mouth or ear, allowed sweethearts to carry on their secret conversations in full view of their chaperones, and not at all look like idiots. Over in Taiwan, the Atayo tribe were fierce warriors with a fondness for collecting the heads of their enemies. The heads of enemies had a significance far beyond war trophies, they're also offered up to young women of the village as a token of romantic intent. The head offering was practised well into the 20th century. I enjoy receiving corpses as much as the next guy, as I'm collector of schools, but I think a fresh human head might be a bit much.
This is usually the part of the podcast where I attempt to say something profound. All I could come up with, really, is that people want to get in each other's pants. They did then, and they do now. The only thing that separates us from them is different cultures, pressures and ideals. I'm trying to imagine how I would explain to a Roman how I met my other half. Yes, we both looked at images of each other and liked them, so then we talked. Oh no, we hadn't met yet, we lived in different cities. No, he didn't approach me, it was me who made the first move. No, I didn't assault him with an apple. Really. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. Five-star reviews this week, here we go! Rosie Sparks says, Everything about this podcast, from the artwork on the front to the topics, is really well thought through. I love that Natalie has found a new spin on some, quite literally, old topics and has also made sure that the podcast delivers unknown facts in a funny and accessible way. I look forward to listening to more informative and interesting episodes soon. And BrumGB simply says, Nice! Thank you, as ever, for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter, at underscore Across the Ages, or you can like my page on Facebook, at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode, where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages.